everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right, today's podcast is titled The Rise and Fall of Peer Review. Uh, just to give you guys a brief background, so this is written by Adam. Adam, uh, how do I get your second name, right? Uh, Adam, I don't want to mispronounce <laughs> it. That's all right. I pronounce it Mastriani. 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 Uh, okay, yeah. Mastriani. There's three vowels in a row. It's a, it's a real labyrinth in there. Yeah, so 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 I did not want to mess your name up, so I was like, I'll just ask you. So just to give you guys a brief background, so Adam has a substack called Experimental History. We'll get into why he calls it Experimental History too, because that's a mystery we need to solve. And then uh, <laughs> on that substack, I read two particular essays. One was titled The Rise and Fall of Peer Review. It was on December 14, 2022. It was making a lot of rounds on social media. And then there was a follow-up uh, essay on December 20. Which in, in which Adam dealt a lot with the commentary made on the previous one, which was called The Dance of the Naked uh, Emperors, a follow-up to The Rise yeah. and Fall of Peer Review. I really liked those two substacks. And then I heard uh, Adam on my, uh, my good friend Razab Khan's uh, substack and podcast. And then I reached out to Adam. I was like, I really want to speak with you. And he agreed. So Adam, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, Adam, just for the benefit, as you are coming on the podcast for the first time, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, so that they get uh, you know familiar with it? Yeah. Uh, so, I uh, have a PhD in experimental psychology. Um, I got that a couple of years ago. Um, I came out of the Harvard Psych Department. Uh, technically, my day job is I teach negotiation to uh, MBAs and executive MBAs at Columbia University. Uh, but really what I do with my time is I write this blog called Experimental History, which is about psychology and about um, science more broadly. Um, and then at night, what I, I, I'm a, I teach and perform um, improv comedy. Uh, so I'm also a comedian. Now, that's interesting. <laughs> so, so you have a sub stack that has, if I yeah. remember, 21,000 subscribers, if I remember correctly, on your sub stack. Yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, yeah. Somewhere around that. Now, that's a decent number. Uh, then you have a PhD and you're doing improv. So so which one influences which one? So does your Substack influence uh, the, PhD, yeah. the a PhD or the comedy influences the Substack? It, it's it's a one big circle. So so like, I mean, like, like when I'm writing for my blog, so every time I, I do a post, I also do a voiceover, which feels very similar to doing a stand-up routine. So I always do it in one take. I go off script. Uh, so that's one way that, that they feed into each other. And really, when I'm thinking about what to write next, what to research next, I'm using a lot of the same brain that I use in a comedy scene where it's like, well, what's the most interesting thing? Like, what's the thing that I think is worth the audience's time? Um, and I feel like it's the same instinct for trying to find the thing that's interesting. Because at any time, you know, the, the audience, they could be home watching Netflix. So, like, why are they watching me? Like, they could be reading anything. So why are they watching me? So I'm always thinking about what do I have that's worth people's time? So that's kind of how they go in, in cycle. Fair enough. All right. So now let's start breaking things down. So for the uh, for people who may have never heard this word peer review, I know it sounds insane, but I, I feel <laughs> as a content creator, it's my duty to break things down step by step. So what exactly yeah. is peer review? When did it start? Uh, from uh, from who came up with this concept of peer reviewing? Sure. And what was the 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 moral argument behind the concept? Yeah, so it's, it's maybe best to start with what people think that it is, um, because it is uh, not what people think that it is. So people, I think, if you think about it, maybe you haven't thought about it at all, you think that like when a scientific paper gets published, you might imagine that what you do is, you know, you send your manuscript to a journal, and then they thoroughly check everything. They send it out to other experts who, you know, maybe rerun the analyses, or they maybe redo one of your experiments to make sure that everything comes out. Um, and then, you know, they find the things that are wrong and you fix them and maybe your paper gets rejected if you can't fix them. And only if you can fix them and you uh, answer all the problems with your research doesn't come out. That isn't what happens. Um, instead, what happens is you send it to an editor of a journal who basically decides of their own accord whether it fits with what they do or it's interesting enough. And then they decide if they're going to send it out to other anonymous, what we call peer reviewers or referees who can do whatever they want, really. They can, you know, give it a glance and kind of read, you know, skim it and go like, ah, it looks good, or I don't like the way you talk about this, or you should cite more of that. What they don't do is actually thoroughly vet the, the research. So they almost certainly do not check your data and your code. They definitely don't replicate one of your experiments. Um, 
And so where did this come from was one of your questions. So people also, I think, assume that the system is the way that science has pretty much always been since we had a thing called science, you know, from sometime in the 1600s. When in reality, what we have had for centuries is a real hodgepodge of different ways that people publish their research. So people would send each other letters. They would uh, publish in what is it basically the equivalent of like a magazine or a, a newspaper. Different scientific societies had different ways that they did this. So sometimes it was, you know, you know the editor, you give it to him, and he kind of gives it a glance over and publishes it, or we all get together and we vote on it. But there was a diversity of ways that people communicated their results. And it really wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that this system became universal that your paper isn't really a paper until it has undergone this process where you send it to a scientific journal who then sends it out for peer review, who then decides whether it's published or not. Um, so that's what we do, and, and that's where it comes from. Fair enough. So, so I guess the intentions behind coming up with the system was to create uh, a more robust system where errors are yeah. going to be corrected, right? That's the first assumption yes. that a paper yep. that is being submitted might have errors. So it is better to send it to a peer reviewer. Second, if you have maybe fudged some data or uh, made some false claims, somebody can catch you. So it is like, uh, uh, and, and it's sort of an editorial, right? Where you have an editor looking at things in, in, in a way. Yep. It's like an editorial process. So why would it be so bad? I mean, it seems nice. <laughs> Yeah, it seems nice. I think two things are wrong with it. One is it doesn't do what it claims to do on the tin. So this idea that people are going to catch the errors in studies turns out not to be the case. And there's actually some research on this. So um, the British Medical Journal, which is one of the most highly esteemed journals in medicine, actually ran some studies where they deliberately inserted errors into papers, then sent them out to their regular reviewers, got the reviews back, and just checked to see like how many of the deliberate errors did reviewers catch. And on average, it was like 25%. And these are really important errors. Like they said they randomized people to conditions, but it turns out they didn't really do that or they didn't do it properly. Um, so people don't really catch those errors. So uh, another way of looking at this is we know that fraudulent um, research gets done and it gets published. And you might think that if we have a system that's catching the fraudulent research, that it would be at the peer review stage. Um, and it's not that, that that never happens, but I've never heard of a single instance of a reviewer catching an instance of fraud. Instead, what usually happens is that a paper gets published or maybe dozens of papers get published. Um, and only later do, do some, does some outside person go like, hey, this doesn't add up, or maybe they try to go looking for the data, and then they discover that it's fraudulent. So we don't really have a system that can even catch the most blatant versions of fraud. In my field in psychology, there was a big case uh, a year or two ago where we discovered that basically someone had just copied and pasted some data. And if you opened up the Excel spreadsheet, you could see that it's in a different font, that they just like copy the data, just like added like plus 50 to it. Um, but like, you know, we didn't look at the data like because we didn't expect them to post it. Um, so it doesn't do what it claims to do. Uh, that's one problem. The other problem is I think, it, uh, and I just wrote a post on this yesterday, I think it misses the point of what we're trying to do in science. So I think people think that science progresses by preventing bad research from coming out. And I think often the bad research doesn't matter at all, at least in the long term. What really matters is our ability to publish good research. And what peer review does, even though it intends to only get the bad stuff, what really happens is, well, now you get reviewers who are like, well, I don't like this. Um, or uh, you're saying something that I disagree with, so I'm going to say no to it. Or you're saying something in a, in a tone that I don't like, so I'm gonna say no to it. Um, and so what we have is a process that distorts the scientific record, um, even in its attempt to improve it. Uh, and one case of this is what we call publication bias, which is it's harder to publish negative results that if someone previously found some result and you run it and you don't find that result, people are way more skeptical and it's harder to get that out. So we have a record that looks like things work even when they don't work. Um, and in a large part that happens because we have this stage at which we give things the thumbs up or the thumbs down. So there are, those are a few problems with the system that seems like it makes total sense uh, when you describe it. So just a follow up to this, uh, it immediately reminded me, I don't remember if it was Oxford or Harvard that had done this research about people reading articles or content in general, where they actually did this experiment uh, where they just had coherent uh, paragraphs for the first two uh, ones. And then they literally wrote gibberish below that. And it was a nice 
clickbaity headline. I, I, I have completely blanked out on who did this research. But what they found out was that people would just go on sharing the article without realizing there was random gibberish. So am I yeah. uh, wrong in understanding that even in peer review, something like this is happening? Not exactly this, but like the psychological yeah. uh, framework is pretty similar, it sounds to me. It could it could totally happen. So there, there's no re real accountability for reviewers. So you know if a review if someone sends in a review that is uh you know that is just random typing on a keyboard, the editor could go like, okay, it looks like this person didn't review it. I'll send it to someone else. But kind of beyond that level, if it sort of looks like you kind of read the paper and you have something to say about it, like that's your review. So I have a paper that I submitted last year where some of the reviews it seems like you know they really took their time to read the paper. Obviously, they didn't take the time to actually open up the data and look at the code, which is if there's any errors, they would be in there. But other reviews were just kind of like, oh, it sounds a little bit like this guy like got a little high uh, and just started free associating. Like, ah, here's what your paper makes me think of. And look, all that's fine. Like people, I think, can say whatever they want about papers. What I take exception to is the idea that there should be this uh, this decision point where like your paper becomes science only if enough people give it to the thumbs up um, and no one gives it the thumbs down. That I think is the distorting part. People I think should say whatever they want about a paper. So uh, how much of this, like I always found this that human beings, it doesn't matter. It's almost as if people have assumed, um, and I don't want to make this into an attack on the scientific process itself because we need science. I mean, Sure. Like, like a person like me who is a disbeliever I have nothing else but science to fall on to, to be very honest like uh, I can't go to a religious place I, I, I got no, nothing to do over there pretty much but scientists are human beings peer reviewers are also human beings and human beings yeah. have frailties but uh, it seems as if you we have designed a system over here that was supposed to check human frailties but we've just added to the madness yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the way that systems often go, that that unfortunately, the systems that are supposed to prevent human frailty are also run by humans that have their own frailties. And so I don't think there's some kind of way that we can perfect human behavior by just designing the right policies or, or implementing the right rules. And I also think that, like, what we should really do is accept that fact that um, that I'm not saying that, like, oh, we should tighten the noose and we should make review way stricter so it actually does I think we should actually understand what it does and treat it appropriately. So what makes me mad isn't that reviewers catch so many errors, it's that we don't acknowledge that they do. So when a paper comes out that has the logo of a journal on top of it, we sort of act as if like, oh, clearly someone is accountable for all of this and they've definitely checked it when they haven't. And so if a journal instead, you know, had a disclaimer in every paper going like, hey, you know, we really didn't read this very closely, like we didn't really check the places where there's probably the most errors, we kind of just like the sound of this. It didn't make us mad. Um, and that's why we're publishing it to you. Like buyer beware. Uh, we make no, um, we make no claims about this paper. Then it'd be like, okay, that's actually, that actually is proportional to the amount of vetting that they do. But if we think that like, oh, these things are entered into a scientific record and they've all been thoroughly vetted, um, that's where we run into problems. So a, an analogy I use in the piece is that, you know, if whatever government agency is responsible for ensuring food safety, uh, goes around and just kind of like, you know, peeks in the window, doesn't really check whether the meat is full of maggots or whether the uh, the the vegetables, if you eat them, will kill you. And then they slap a label on it saying like, this has been checked. Like they're doing you a harm because they're leading you to trust something that hasn't actually been vetted. Um, if they said like, hey, we haven't really done anything, like this could kill you. Um, I mean, I'd still rather live in a world where the food doesn't kill me, but at least I'm not also being lied to. You know, this, this this is another parallel that I get reminded of is, uh, at least when I was growing up, there was news. You know, there was state media, there was private media in India. In India, in the late 80s and the early 90s is when, after the liberalization, private media came. Obviously, in America, it was way before that. But, you know, there was this news. People would say things, we would hear things, and we would get over. And then came the phenomenon called fact-checking. They are the peer reviewers of media. It, they are. They, they are peer-reviewing media, right? They're looking at things that the media gets wrong. And then now we have another genre that has come up in India in the last two, three years. There are people who fact-check the fact-checkers. Uh -huh. Because even fact-checkers apparently are not, uh, you know, these uh, uh, 
pious players and they also have human frailties so how how do we fix this problem then because it seems mm. to be a human problem it's not a system problem it's 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 a us problem not a the idea problem or you think it's a bit of both yeah um i mean i think the fundamental problem is thinking that we can solve this by adding additional fact checkers that like if we can just have fact checkers for the fact checkers for the fact checkers like if we can just find the people that we should trust then we're going to fix it when i think in fact the problem begins with our expectations for the information that we encounter that i think we all live in a hostile information environment where many of the things that we encounter are going to be untrue or at least le you know less true than they seem and i think you should treat it like that and science is no exception to it that any given paper could be totally wrong it could be fraudulent and the right thing to do is not to be like not to think what we you know we need to create these systems in which we never have such a paper exist it is to understand that those papers exist and act appropriately and to understand that having any conviction about anything is actually very costly if you really want to know whether something is true or not you have to apply a lot of work to it this is especially true in science where you know it can take us more than a human lifetime to figure out which thing is true because it takes a long time to run the studies or sometimes the data isn't clear um and uh and that's just the way that it works we can't make it go faster uh we just have to accept it and so i think the problem comes from our credulity or from our expectation that we're only going to encounter true things or we just need to figure out the right person to trust and then trust them on anything um that i think we need to be less certain um and understand that we have to be but then what about the truth because at the end of the day we are all truth seekers i mean i, I hope we are all i don't know about everyone yeah. i don't speak for the whole race of humans but i mean i i assume we are all coming at this intention because uh, i don't doubt the intentions of people who decided to come up with the system secondly uh, I, i i genuinely don't know this are peer reviewers paid like are they paid to do that job usually not um not some sometimes but almost never um are they paid do you think that's um, the reason they're lazy people who 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 <laughs> who just skim through it they're like i'm not getting paid for this shit why should i do it yeah 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 i mean uh, there have been i think some experiments to try to pay reviewers and see, and see if they do better reviews and i don't think the the results are very good in part because if you really want people to take this seriously you actually have to pay them quite a bit of money um that you know you get no credit for um for reviewing so and that's really what uh scientists work for i mean you have to pay them too but what they would really love is more esteem from their colleagues that's why we publish papers in in large part and so if you get nothing out of peer reviewing if you just do it for money there are actually ways that scientists could make more money faster by like consulting for companies or whatever then they could get by you know getting 50 bucks to read a paper from beginning to end um and i think this is also like uh most papers you know this is to the the thing i published yesterday that, that science is actually a strong link problem most papers don't matter like there's no reason to review them they're not never going to go anywhere they'll never be cited they'll never be useful and so like actually the amount of time that we spend vetting them is wasted and really what we should be thinking about is like what are the things that have turned out to be really important for us like what is everything resting on maybe we should make sure that those things uh actually uh happen a second time uh psychology is a little bit unique in this and that i think there are actually very few things that, that turned out to matter in the long term or a pretty young science this isn't true for other fields where you know we're all relying on this method producing reliable results and so somebody should check it um there are plenty of other things that no one ever uses again we don't need to check those um so that's i th i think another thing we, we, that we can do is be more purposeful about the things that actually matter and the things that don't matter but don't you think that has also got a problem of a recency bias or a publication bias where let's say somebody is famous for hypothetically let's say someone with 3 million followers on twitter right that person yeah. picks up a paper let's say and says huh this sounds interesting and then everybody focuses on that now how do we quantify whether that particular paper is really as you said worth it or not how do we quantify yeah. that yeah i think it's by taking a, a longer term view so in the short term these things happen all the time that something gets really popular a bunch of people start doing it um but if you look if you look over decades and look at what have we actually come to rely on so it for instance in psychology one of these things is um 
what we call the availability heuristic, which is the idea that you judge how frequent something is by how easily it comes to mind. Um, that's turned out to be a really useful finding um, since like 1970, whatever, when it came out. Um, and it turns out that fortunately, like that does replicate, like we're pretty sure that that exists. Um, there are only a few things I think that are like that. Um, I don't think there are hundreds of them. I think there are maybe dozens of them. Um, and so in the short term, yeah, people are going to get really interested in something. It's going to become a fad. I think the key is to ignore it. Um, just like on social media every week, people are going to be upset about something. Um, and usually it's not something that's actually worth paying that much attention to. Uh, I think what helps is taking the longer view. This is also, uh, by the way, why I, uh, I have another post on this, why I don't read the news. Um, for this exact reason, that it's so easy to get misled in the short term that like, oh, this thing matters so much because it's happening right now, but next week it won't be a thing that matters. And so if you're always sort of pulled around by the nose it, uh, to caring about this thing and then caring about that thing, you're never really gonna do much of anything because you're spreading your efforts and your attention so thinly. Uh, so, so would you say, so you know, there are these Twitter handles. I, I mean, full disclosure, I handle them too. I follow them and I try to follow scientific Twitter, science Twitter too. Like I said, yeah. that's all I have got. So I follow them and yeah. I try to yeah. learn, uh, learn as much as possible. I mean, I'm not a science guy, so you can only learn, read, question people. But this seems to be a genuine problem where Let's say we did not have a peer review system. Okay, we do away with it. We just have people publishing papers. So what you will have in this case is a preprint, right? That's what a preprint is. It is going mm -hmm. before peer review. So the only uh, the differentiation between a preprint and a, a paper that has been published on a proper portal, let's say cell.com or uh, whatever, hypothetical name I'm giving is that one has been peer reviewed, one is pre-printed. Now, the problem here is that let's say we take COVID, for example. Now, during COVID, I remember everybody was doing research and there were so many preprints being published. Yeah. Now, if they are not pre-peer reviewed, Adam, we could run into problems, don't you think? Because that was a totally. time of emergency. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think naturally, if we want the truth very quickly, we're going to be misled a lot. Um, and I don't think there's a way around that. Like there, there isn't a way that we can solve the trade-off of we want to know the truth, but we also want to know it right now. Um, it turns out that like it takes a while to figure these things out. Like you run a study, you find one result. I run a study and I find a different result. What happened? Like it's going to take us a while to figure that out. Um, to, to speak of like, how should the system work? I, I actually uh, don't think at all about systems. I, I, I find this, I think the wrong way of specifying the question that like, should we have peer review or should we not have peer review? Um, I, think, I think that phrases the question in terms of like, what are the appropriate rules that we should abide by when we're doing science? Um, it's a very top down way of thinking that how should everybody do their science? I have no idea. What I feel like is that there should be a diversity of approaches. And so what I, what I actually object to is the idea that everybody should be doing the same thing. Because in order to claim that, in order to claim that everyone should follow the same process, abide by the same rules, you should have extreme conviction that those are better than any other rules. And normally to have that kind of conviction, we want you know decades of experiments and we want huge meta-analyses. We want to be really sure that those trade-offs are better than other trade-offs. But really all we kind of have is a gut feeling. And so if that's all the evidence that we have, I think we should instead take a diversity of approaches. And so my own approach is I like the idea of just posting stuff on the internet. This is what I do now. I post my paper on my blog. I write it in normal language. I post all the data and the code. Is it peer reviewed? Well, people comment on it. So it's reviewed in that sense, but the reviewers didn't get to decide whether it's published or not. That's what works for me. And I think it could work for other people too, but I don't intend to force anyone to do it. I, I'm very uninterested in the idea of trying to control other people's behavior. I find it very creepy. And so when people want to control mine, I also find that very creepy. So I don't think about this in terms of what should the system be? What To what rules should we all submit? Uh, because I think it takes way more conviction than we should have. Fair enough. I, I kind of get where you're coming from because... Uh... These are some of the issues you did touch upon in the second part, uh, 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 the December 28th one, where you yeah. pick out questions. Now, one of the things that I feel is at the core of this process, people may not like to admit it, actually is the human being 
at the core of this process yeah. whether it is the peer review as a process humans are peer reviewing it now whether it's someone like you you come across as a person who uh, who takes his work very seriously uh, you have an inner ethical code so you know even if somebody goes on your substack and writes a comment you would maybe read it you would try to process mm-hmm. it if somebody says uh, adam i think you've made a mistake here could you check this out and you would check it out and yeah so what am i getting you wrong what you're saying is hey if somebody does comment on my that's anyways like a peer review for me and i'm going to correct it anyway so why should i waste my time am i misunderstanding you <laughs> yeah no exactly so like uh uh last fall i published a paper on my blog um and i got tons of responses i had someone send me an annotated pdf of my paper saying like you know i disagree with this i think you should like format it this way and so some of the comments i thought were right and so i edited the paper in response and now i thank that person in the acknowledgments um i also thought like people were so much more helpful when i published in what is in fact like a very low status way because the, the people who talked to me were actually interested in making the work better so something that gets tied up in scientific publishing is some publications are very high status and some are very low status because of the the nature of the journal um and and in fact publishing anything is you know is a bid for status it's saying you should regard me more because i've now published in this and because of that people get really mad um and often when i mean i would i would venture a guess at like 95% of the time when people are talking about a paper on twitter it's because they are trying to tear it down because there's some status to be gained in doing that whereas when i published a paper just on my blog i'm just some random dude just putting words on the internet the only reason for people to talk to me is because they actually cared that i got it right and so my paper got better because people engage with me in that way whereas like that paper uh, i have a paper that, that's uh, going to come out soon in a journal that i just know that a ton of people are going to hate it because it's in that journal like because it's going to uh, be in a very high status journal where they'll go this is the crap that they publish these days and like i don't actually want people to perceive my work through that lens like i want them to care about it if they think it's important i want them to criticize it if they think if they want to make it better not because they want to take me down a peg Wow, this is fascinating. I actually never thought of it that this way. That you know, nowadays, yeah, we live in such absurd times that you know, portals also are looked through the lens of tribalism. Like, yeah, this is what we have done to ourselves. It's it's actually unfortunate that you know you ended up there. So you are in Team X. You ended up there. Yes. You are in Team Y. And the truth is sitting in the corner. Hello, I'm here. what do i do <laughs> the truth matters yes. so actually no you've actually convinced me through this argument that you know i don't want to waste my time getting attached to other people and uh, i i'm just concerned about the science but then human beings again are human beings there are so many vested interests what hope do you have as an individual of your your proposal picking up and mm-hmm. more and more people saying you know to help with your peer review system i'm going to go and put my work out there there in the open and people who are genuinely interested will get back to me and do this and do you think it is only possible because of advent of new age media or new technologies like say mm-hmm. substack like i i i came across yeah. your work on substack and i was like damn this makes sense i like this idea yeah. so and yeah. and i'm a substack guy i follow a lot of people on substack i pay you know i tend yeah. to pay and read their content but do you think it's just the niche that substack has created now it certainly helps so i mean a reason why um journals became basically hegemonic over the past generation was you needed somebody to print out your papers and like they you know they contracted with the printing press or they owned one And so the only way people could read your paper is if someone printed it out on paper and mailed it to them. And it was hard to do that on your own. Now you can just put something on the internet so you don't need a middleman to uh to work the printing press for you. So yeah, this is something that would have been, you know, nearly impossible to do uh, you know, more than 30 years ago. But I actually don't have any particular hope that like, you know, people destroy peer review or stop doing this in part because I don't have the conviction that like there's some other way that it would work better. What I really hope is more people try more things and i hope that the best one wins if if we're making the best trade offs now hey fine uh you know i'm pointing out all the way that, that all the ways that i think that they're bad i don't think that's what will happen what i want to do is the thing that i think is best for the way that i work and i want other people to do the same thing and not just keep doing science the way they think it should be done because everybody else is doing it uh or because you know it's so risky to do things some other way so wh- I know you've touched upon it in the essay too the second one but 
I think this is one genuine concern that I know you mentioned it on the essay too, but I feel this is a genuine concern. And I'll again come at it from a average person's perspective where there used to be, there are two ways of looking at it. I, I read this book, The Death of Expertise. Uh, it was a very interesting book. Uh, I forgot the name of the author. I'm very bad with author, the names of authors. It's a miracle that I remember the name of the book itself. But it was a very good book. That, what that book was saying is that in the advent of social media, everybody is an opinion maker. Everybody is an expert. Everybody, And we are creating to use the name of another book written by a fantastic Indian author, Arun Shori. He, he wrote a book on Ambedkar, which was called Worshipping False Gods. So I'm not talking about Ambedkar. I'm just using that title. Uh -huh. And the new age media has this capacity to create false gods. Now, if we throw science up in the open like this, I mean, you use the, the Nobel Prize analogy in that, right? In your essay, you've used the Nobel Prize analogy, but I'm using it in a completely different way where today, I mean, I'm saying this even I'm on YouTube and on audio platforms, but still you have absurd YouTubers peddling absolute bollocks uh, under the garb of science and and they just, you know, they get millions of views. Like, they say real yeah. absurd things. And and then there is a person like me who will be like, okay, I'll read this book. Then I'll read that book. And by the time I'm done reading all these books, the, the, the thing is gone. So, so how do you, do you fear that this could kind of happen to what you're proposing to? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is, it is the same fears that people have for something like free speech. That, like if we just allow people to say basically whatever they want, then won't bad people say bad things and we'll be worse off. And, and I think the whole point of it is, is that like, yes, that's a cost that we bear because we think it is important enough for people to be able to say what they want. Um, and we think it is so costly to create an apparatus to stop people from saying what they want and so prone to abuse. That doesn't mean that, you know, that we have totally no rules at all. Like if you, you know, profit from a lie that you say about someone, um, then you can be sued. And like, that makes sense. Um, if you say, hey, we should all go over to this person's house and burn it down, uh, then like, that is also bad. Uh, and like, you can face consequences for that. But basically up until that point, um, we agree that like the cost of, of uh, free speech is speech that we don't like. Um, and like, yeah, it's hard to look at people getting really successful spreading lies. And I just have this optimistic and I don't think naive hope that in the long term, the truth does win out because it is historically what happens. You have to look somewhat long term. Right. But it's not the case that we still think that, uh, you know, oysters come from mud and tadpoles, uh, you know, come out of muck. Uh, like we know that, that like spontaneous generation doesn't work. Um, you know, we know that uh, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. And it's not like every day we're teetering on the brink of going back to thinking that way. There are always some people who do, um, and we might think that we'll somehow be better off if we shut those people down or prevent them from speaking. But if we do that, we create the same kind of apparatus that could, if those people get in charge of it, shut the other people down. So I'd rather trust in the truth and hope that, uh, that like things that are true stick around because they are true, because they give people more ability to interact with the world, rather than hoping that like if we just get the right gatekeeper doing the right thing, um, then we'll be better off. Um, but it requires some optimism. Like it, it's a hard belief to, to hold on to when there's so many people saying so many outrageous things. Yeah, I kind of understand. I mean, while there are people who see aliens everywhere, uh, there are people who also make videos who correct them and, and consistently, uh, you know, bust the narratives. Like even in the area of financial frauds, there's this particular uh, YouTuber. He's huge. Uh, you know, he breaks down financial frauds and he breaks down how people do things. So, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, you just have to uh, look look for those people and that there is enough content out there to even correct there. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a free speech absolutist, although India does not have free speech, but that is not the aim of the show. Um, now, can we... Now, we are in the, uh, the, the age of chat GPT. We are in the age of all these artificial intelligence-inspired systems. Could peer review benefit from this? Let's say you put up your science mm. and there is this system of peer reviews 
Now I have a counter to that too in my own head, but I want to ask you the question first to hear your view. <laughs> and let's say you submit it. Let's say some random chat GPT peer review system. I've put my paper. They a, a, a it'll be faster because uh, I remember you you mentioned what fifteen thousand years or something of time. Now, yeah. so it's clearly a human problem, right? So why can't we add AI to the system? I think the AI would do it faster, right? Yeah, so um, so the, I think there's two things there. One is uh, what I object to is the idea of getting the th giving the thumbs up or down to a paper, like letting a paper exist or not in the first place because of peer review. Uh, and so when I say peer review, what I really mean is universal pre-publication peer review, a way of deciding what gets to come out um, based on the opinions of reviewers. But the fact that people review stuff afterward, I mean, you need people paying attention to each other's work and commenting on it and trying to make the good stuff better. Um, so that I think is good. Could AI be a, a part of it? Maybe. I, I feel kind of agnostic about it. Right now, I think it uh, it isn't very good in part because like uh, it hallucinates um, uh, sources. Like whenever I've tried to to use it, I'm like, no, I actually, I need this to be true. I don't just need it to like make sense as a sentence. So when you tell me that this paper exists and then it turns out it doesn't exist, uh, that's actually a big problem for me. Um, but if there is some way of like, you know, we feed this paper into the machine and the machine can tell us like, hey, uh, you know, you rerun the code and, uh, and actually you get different numbers than, are, than is in the paper. Like th that seems helpful. Um, again, I think most papers don't deserve to be paid attention to in the first place. So it doesn't actually get us any benefit there. But I would certainly love to have that tool as a researcher who like, uh, you know, rather than ask my friend to check my code, I can ask the, the computer. Um, if it actually does a good job, like often these problems are a little idiosyncratic that are very difficult for the computer to do because it's used to dealing with problems on average. And so it's going to get things slightly wrong. So we have a little bit of this in this thing called stat check uh, that people have tried to use for papers where you put your paper into this machine and it tells you like, do these statistics make sense that you've written out? Um, and then there's another paper about how actually that doesn't work. Like something, you know, it doesn't read the numbers correctly. Cause like, you know, sometimes when you feed in a PDF, like, you know, it, it turns a seven into a two or whatever. Um, so all these things could help today. Do they help? I think not really, but I'm open to a future where they could. Yeah. As far as chat GPT-4 is concerned, it was very interesting. You know, my friend, his father is a known geneticist in India and uh, he just asked chat GPT to write something about his father. Chat GPT actually made things up. It made yeah. shit up. Not, yeah. Nothing was real. And and then, you know, he sent me those things that Chat GPT said. I was like, wait, what? And he was like, yeah, the <laughs> AI is making things up. It, 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 my father has never done these things, and the AI is just creating things. So, so that was one potential problem that, you know, at the end of the day, the AI system is as good as the inputs, right? It, it culls things through inputs. So while it could be mechanical or mathematical tools, I think they're there, the AI, like you said, if I could put it in and I test the code, I think there it could be very accurate. But in the realm of, let's say, social sciences, I think, uh, do you think the AI could, or especially humanities, it could do, it could do justice in that sense? Yeah, I mean... Something that I might trust it more on is uh, like, do do these numbers make sense? Like, if you reran the code, would you get the same numbers? Does the code work? Um, are the do the analyses seem like they were appropriate for the questions that people are trying to ask? But even there, the more and more abstract the question gets, the less and less I trust this. That like, and ultimately, the first question that I ask of any piece of research is, does it matter? And only second, do I, am I interested in, is it true or not? Because it doesn't matter. I don't care if it's not true. Uh, and I actually don't trust the, the computer to tell me whether something matters or not. That, I think, is a very human judgment. And I think it'd be very hard to get a computer there because I can't articulate to you like the ways in which I know whether something matters or not. It's, like, it's very intuitive and visceral. And, um, and I think even if you trained a computer on my judgments, like it still wouldn't get the thing that's there. Like That is something that, that I trained for like years of being an apprentice to my advisor to get some sense of what kind of questions are worth asking in the first place. And so that most important thing, like does this thing matter or not, I think is going to remain at least for a long time, a very human judgment. Whereas uh, is this true or not? Um, I think could maybe more easily be outsourced because also I think there's much less disagreement about the second one, like the code runs or it doesn't, like you copied the numbers over wrong or you didn't. 
Whereas does something matter? Like my opinion on that is going to differ from someone else's in, in ways that I think are actually productive. And so I don't think you could train an agent that can uh, accurately represent the fact that people are going to look at this and some people are going to think it's important and some people aren't. So th that I think is another big bottleneck. Now, uh, when I was actually trying to see everything related to your research on different, like I Googled it, I searched it on Twitter. I was just trying to go through the comments and um, you do mention the status quo bias there uh, in, in the essay itself. Like people just don't like this idea of, you know, changing what's going on. Okay, we just got this thing going on. Why, why does Adam want to come and, you know, make things hard for us? And, and uh, you know, we all hate Adam for... <laughs> writing this substack why did he have to do this and break our hearts but the point is do you think a lot of pushback that came to you was just basically man i don't want to deal with one more thing in my life i already have enough shit to deal with and this guy's creating cognitive dissonance yeah i think it's a little bit that i think if it was truly that they could have just closed the tab or went somewhere else but the fact that people chose to comment like chose to do something on twitter suggests that like they think that something here matters um, I mean, one person, I wrote about this in the second piece, like one person literally, uh, try like threatened to get me fired, um, uh, for, for writing the first piece. And I'm like, well, you must really care about this. And so why do people care so much? I think a lot of it is because of status that like, uh, you know, the person threatening me was a tenured professor who has been very successful in the system that works a certain way. And so if you're saying like, hey, actually that system doesn't work the way people think that it is, like that's threatening uh, to say that like you you succeeded in this way that like doesn't work very well. Um, and you don't, people don't like to, to see you like kicking over a ladder that they've already climbed up or that they're trying to climb up. Uh, I think that, that's one big reason. I think another is there's this uh, effect called the, the third person effect where um, people think that things are gonna persuade someone else more than they persuade me. You know, so I see some fake news on Twitter or something and I go, oh no, everybody else is gonna believe this. I of course don't, but everybody else is doing that too. And so this idea that we need to stop the, the, the bad things from coming out because they're gonna persuade everybody else is basically a version of other people are stupid, I'm smart, only I can sort through the things that are true and not true. Um, and I just think, I mean, that's not true. If everyone on average feels like they are less persuadable than other people, somebody's gotta be wrong. Um, so that I think is, is is another reason. And the third, as you said, I think is a status quo bias that, um, which is this effect where we we judge things uh, or we assume that things are good right now and we judge every change as, uh, as some departure from the status quo. So we have the system, well, that system must be good, so why do you wanna change it? Um, or all changes or all other systems are some change from this system rather than like, if we were starting from scratch, what would we choose to do? Although again, I'm not all inter interested in creating a system. I'm more interested in like, what part do I play in an ecosystem? And really the only rules that I care about are the rules that allow the ecosystem to flourish rather than the rules that I impose on other people. Fair enough. Uh, I think your, your your perspective is just let me be, uh, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. <laughs> you know, you guys can keep banging your heads on the wall. I mean, I think it's a very libertarian approach which I can relate to. <laughs> Uh -huh. in that in in that sense uh, but so i i'm just using stuart ritchie's book science fictions as an example uh, i i'll by the way i loved that book i found it to be very interesting and because you are kind of from that background so so what do you make yeah. of this whole replication crisis that that is there because uh don't you think the replication crisis the p hacking that stuart talks about in the book which is very active um don't you think that also kind of Stuart's book actually bolsters your argument against peer review? It's funny because literally this morning he's yelling at me on Twitter uh, for the, the <laughs> thing I posted yesterday. Uh, so I, he and I don't, don't see eye to eye on, on various things. I think one one being, so I agree, obviously, that you know, p-hacking is bad, you shouldn't do fraud. All these things seem obvious. I don't think anyone would disagree. But I think where we disagree is... Um, what actually, uh, how is the way that science actually succeeds? And so this piece that I wrote yesterday is science is, um, is a strong link problem. So you can think of uh, two kinds of problems in the world. There are strong link problems and weak link problems. In a weak link problem, the overall quality of the, of the problem depends on the worst parts. Um, so things like food safety are a weak link problem because like, I don't really care that there's a really safe 
you know, cut of uh, of pork out there. I go to the store and buy one that's infected with listeria or whatever, and I go home and die. That's what I care about. I really want there to be standards here. I want someone to be making sure that there's nothing at the grocery store that's going to kill me. Like, this is a case where I'm like, there should be rules. There should be people doing inspections. There should be standards. There should be accountability. That's a weak link problem. In a strong link problem, all you care about is the best. So, uh, so say if you, if you want your country to win the Olympics, you only care about making the best athletes better. You don't care about taking someone who's at the 50th percentile and moving them to the 60th percentile. It's not going to do anything for you. And so these, are, these problems are totally different in the way that you try to solve them. And I think science is a strong link problem. We succeed by allowing the best stuff to exist in the first place and by making it better. We don't really do anything by preventing bad stuff from existing or by making it better. It is true that in, in the short term, you could be misled by it or, or it soaks up resources. But I think actually what people get really mad about, about this bad research, is that it unfairly takes status. That like academics are extremely hierarchical, even if they claim to be egalitarian, and they really don't like people getting credit that they shouldn't get. And so even if you publish in you know some third tier journal, some paper that no one is ever going to use for anything, and you p-hack it, everyone thinks that that's really bad and we should stop you from doing that. I agree. We'd be, you know, it'd be better if you didn't do it, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. And we, whatever time we waste in preventing you from, from doing that uh, at the cost of someone else, um, of some like better study coming out, I think that is a total waste. And, and not every problem is, is like this, right? You have to be conscious of whether you're dealing with a strong link or a weak link problem. But if you look across the history of science, like it's not that, you know, sometimes randomly we decide not to believe things that are truer. Um, you know, we just we just decide like actually we're going back to geocentrism. Like fortunately in science, there is some kind of truth out in the world. Um, and if we discover something closer to that truth, it tends to stick around. That's why it's a strong link problem. And that's why I'm less concerned about all these weak link policies that like we need to root out all these people uh, you know, publishing their bad research. The, the way my advisor talks about it, he's like, what do I care that it didn't happen a second time? I didn't care that it happened the first time. That's not true about every single thing. Like there are some findings that I care whether they happen again. It's just actually very, very few. And so if you if you get a hundred of the uh, you know hundred psychology findings together and rerun them and find like only thirty six percent of them replicate, I'm like, well, but I need to know which ones. That's all that matters to me. Most of these I probably never cared about in the first place. I wouldn't have trusted anyway. I wasn't going to build anything on them. Uh, this is a weak link approach to this problem. That's actually a strong link problem. Maybe maybe that that's the way that I think about it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I actually kind of get what you're saying, but because uh, if I remember correctly, there was this paper on, uh, that was published in Sage Journals in in March in 2023. It was called something to do with bi biases. It was by Aileen Oberst about how almost most biases can be kind of clubbed under the the rubric of confirm confirmation biases, and you know, I don't know why we are creating a fuss around it. it was a very interesting approach to the whole uh, thing. Mm -hmm. I, I really like the paper. I read it. I don't know why I read it, but I do tend to dabble with these things. I don't have any expertise, but I try my best to read these things so that I learn. So one last question before uh, uh, I, I, you know, I let you go. That. So what do you, what what is the road ahead? Do we see maybe you know people like you uh, if Obviously, in a country like America, there is a lot of private, privately funded research too, where private institutions do a lot of funding. I know the state has played a huge role in research and development overall. I'm just using Elon Musk as an example. I am not making mm -hmm. a favorable or uh, anti-Elon argument. I have no opinion on Elon Musk other than then I give him money for Twitter, for the for the Twitter blue. That's all my opinion and dealing with Elon Musk is. But the point is that let's say a person like elon musk right he 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 he's like okay this thing makes sense let's just you know cut the bureaucracy down and let's just focus on science do you think the uh, what you're proposing would actually flourish in a very private enterprise or a private entrepreneurial uh, approach rather than the because the bureaucracy stems from a very government mindset where everybody wants to control yes yeah. Uh, no, I, I think it, this is hard to do um, through a system that needs to be really transparent and accountable and build consensus that I think those kinds of systems are, are really useful for solving a lot of problems. But if what you need to do is take a risk on something that you have no idea whether it's going to work or not, it's really hard to you know have the whole committee agree that we should take a risk on this thing that we have no idea whether it's going to work or not. Um, 
which is why I think there's a, a role here for uh, for these things being privately supported. I wish it didn't have to be that way, but like I think science is a public good, and I think you know we all benefit when we learn more about the world. And so I think it makes sense that we would you know spend money that we all collectively contribute to funding it. Um, and I think if we were to accomplish it this way, we'd have to agree that like look, sometimes these things aren't going to work out, and we really don't know beforehand which of these proposals is really promising and which isn't. We're just going to have. I mean, so this is now my idea. This is a Sidney Brenner, who was a Nobel laureate, uh, would go around giving this talk being like, I want to establish a casino fund. Give me 1% of your grant funding and I'll just give it out to, I'll give it out randomly or I'll give it out like basically like I'll, I'll spin a wheel and I'll decide who gets it. Nobody wants to do it. Um, but, but I think actually like we might stand a much better chance of funding high risk things um, that turn out um, if we do it that way. It's hard to do it if everyone needs to show that like, you know, actually we knew that this was the, always the right thing to do. If that's the way we limit our decision-making, we can only study things that we are basically already know are true, which means we're never really gonna discover anything that important. Um, but really what I want is, is an ecosystem of these things. So I think some research is best funded through these consensus building mechanisms that have to be really accountable. I hope that's part of the ecosystem too. I think other things like you need people to take risks and you need people who say like, look, I funded a hundred things, 97 of them went nowhere, three of them changed the world. I think that's also good. Um, and really what you need is both. And so anyone who's like, everybody needs to do everything the same way. It all has to work in this particular process. I think sounds crazy because why would you, why would you turn down diversity? Like, why are you so certain that this is the best way to do, to do things? I, I think because we don't know the best approach is a diverse one. Fair enough. I think there's only one person uh, in, in this entire process who wants to control, and that's the people who are criticizing you. You, you don't want to control anyone. You just <laughs> want to be left alone. <laughs> so so I, I guess the problem stems from that. And uh, I, I can relate to the to the comments and the, you know, the anger which came. It was It was nothing to do with your argument and approach it was more to do with the cognitive dissonance and human beings are human beings i mean we face yeah. that daily on social media so we're kind of used to it but uh, adam i really enjoyed uh, you know the these essays i now now that i've discovered you your work i'm going to try and read more of your work so thank you very much for coming hey thanks for having me good to talk to you all right, guys, we're going to wrap it up. So in the description, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to the audio version on Spotify, iTunes, I've left Adam's Twitter handle and the link to his Substack. You can go and subscribe over there on Substack, read, read his work. Also, if you like what I'm doing over here, you know the drill. Like, subscribe. If you want to support it monetarily, become a member on YouTube, Patreon, Fanmo, or buy the merchandise. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, take care. Bye.